Please turn with me, and you, if you would, to, in your Bibles to the erotic poem known as Solomon's Song of Songs, chapter 5. Sex is weird. I mean, sex is weird, right? Have you ever thought about that? Just how weird it is? I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying that sex is weird. I mean, have you ever thought about it? Have you ever noticed that? I wouldn't blame you if you hadn't. You know, we spend our childhood relatively oblivious to it. And then sometime around our early teens, our sexuality, it just develops in this, into this intimate relationship with the rest of our character with little or no help on our part. It, it becomes this driving force for decision-making, so much so that entire civilizations have been affected by a person doing or not doing the serious work you know, the serious business that uh, it takes to acknowledge sex and our sexuality for what it is. It's funny, I recently um, been watching this television show, The Tudors, and I think if Henry VIII had understood his own sexuality a little bit better, maybe the entire course of Western civilization might have been different. Whether it's nature or nurture, we somehow we develop this intense interest in rolling around naked with each other and exchanging bodily fluids. We've had some opportunities these past few weeks to consider various angles to the sex question. Last week we saw how sex can be wild, that wild nature. The week before that we reminded each other that the youth in our community can benefit from the experiences of those um, that have seen successes and failures, that the successes and failures that you all have experienced in your life in regards to sexuality and in regards to anything else, that's going to mean something to the youth of our community. We talked about how sex is sensual and about how adoring our spouse's body can be anticipatory of the new creation. I have no doubt that all of us will benefit from considering that mysterious nature of sex and its connection to our relationship with God. But for today, today I just want to say this. Sex is weird. There is perhaps no other human activity that leaves us so vulnerable, so at risk from attacks on the battlefield planes of the physical, the mental the emotional, and maybe even the spiritual. But we, you, we do it anyway. We choose to do it anyway. We choose to engage in this unstable, unregulated, and let's be honest, dangerous activity that can and probably will cause damage to you at some point in your life. And for what? Because it's human nature. Because that's how procreation works. Because that's how God's plan works, no doubt. I believe, though, that this weird, unstable, risky activity is one of the most important things that we can do for a world that is hungry for the living God. Let me say that again. 
I believe that sex is important. And I believe that our doing business with business time will have a direct impact on how we as Christ's church build for God's kingdom. To do that, though, we must release the Kraken. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2. This is the woman speaking in what has been described or what can be seen as a dream sequence. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, and my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped, and when he spoke, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls, they took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. Listen to a different translation of that text. I was sound asleep, but in my dreams I was wide awake. Oh, listen, it's the sound of my lover calling, knocking. Love in, dear companion, dearest friend, my dove, consummate lover. I'm soaked with the dampness of night, drenched with dew, shivering and cold. But I'm in my nightgown. Do you expect me to get dressed? I'm bathed and in bed. Do you want me to get dirty? But my lover wouldn't take no for an answer. And the longer he knocked, the more excited I became. I got up to open the door for my lover, sweetly ready to receive him, desiring and expectant as I turned the door handle. But when I opened the door, he was gone. My lover, my loved one, had tired of waiting and left, and, and I died inside. Oh, I felt so bad. I ran out looking for him, but, but he was nowhere to be found. I called into the darkness, but no answer. The night watchmen found me as they patrolled the, cities of the, uh, the streets of the city. They slapped and beat and bruised me, ripping off my clothes. These watchmen... These watchmen who are supposed to be guarding the city. I beg you, sisters of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, please tell him I want him, that I'm heartsick with love for him. Interesting that there are a few words in the King James. Uh, I, the first one was the New King James Version. And the second one was uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. Peterson adds a few things. Um, Interesting to try to see if you can tell what he adds. This is all comparatively disturbing, isn't it? I mean, first of all, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. At first glance, we might want to say that this is a story of a woman who dreams of her lover coming to her room and asking for entry. He's apparently cold and wet from the night weather. 
She then gives him an excuse as to why she can't open the door, and when he tries to come in anyway, her heart skips a beat. And she gets all hot and bothered at the prospect of him coming after all. She decides to open and only to find her lover gone. But when she goes to look for him, not only can she not find him, but for some reason she gets beaten up by the cops. I mean, this is a dream sequence. It's supposed to be weird, but that last part is weird, weird. Let's consider a few things. First of all, there is a theme, I think, of seeking and finding that is quite powerful. First, the man attempts entry into the woman's chambers, and then he flees the scene and searches for him. She flees the, uh, he flees the scene, and she searches for him only to struggle to find him. There is a scent of the pursuit being part of the intimacy. Catch me if you can. Now, for me, the key to understanding that aspect of the text can be found in the movie that I'm sure all of you have on your mind right now, Jurassic Park. (laughs) Jurassic Park came out when I was, I think, 11, 92. So I was 11 years old, and this movie came out. And, of course, I wasn't thinking about this then. But a couple of years later, I said, ooh, that is a picture of my sexuality. So there is this scene in the beginning when the scientists have arrived on the, the island, and oh my goodness, they got well, dinosaurs wandering around, and they show that this natural miracle, this thing that, that humanity has stumbled upon, um, can be regulated to the point of it being an amusement park, an attraction. And there's all kinds of philosophical conversation that we get from Jeff Goldblum. And then there's this comment that Alan Grant makes that uh, when the Tyrannosaurus Rex gets fed the goat, the goat gets lowered into the T-Rex's chambers. And it disappears. And the little girl says, where's the goat? What happened to the goat? He ate the goat? And then later on, Dr. Grant says, Don't you see? T-Rex doesn't want to be fed. T-Rex wants to hunt. We have no idea what to expect. T-Rex wants to hunt. You know, for me, and I suspect for others, that can be a powerful image that's helpful in understanding our own sexuality. I think that the challenge for each of us is to embrace with honesty this question of what are we hunting? The answer to that question can be tremendously telling for the single and the married folks among us. For you, are you the kind, are you after that kind of intimacy that comes from a Christ-centered union? Or is sex something that belongs on a checklist? Is it time for you to be honest with yourself and your spouse and admit that sex has evolved into a rather annoying chore? Are you saying, well, sure, the sex could be better, but we just like to put it behind us? Well, we try not to talk about it. What are you pursuing? What are you hunting for? What Are you hunting for that kill? Are you hunting for sexual conquest? 
Is your hunt about the fantasy of sexual conquest? Or is that hunt about something else? Is that hunt about Christ and your spouse? Consider Paul's words in Philippians. Philippians 3. Starting in verse 12, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can that be a call to our marriages? Can that be a call to our sexuality? Is that a call to ask Jesus to be the centerpiece of everything that we do and not say that my sexuality belongs in my bedroom and Jesus belongs everywhere else? Or is Paul saying, Jesus wants it all? Jesus wants your sexuality. And we pursue it. We hunt for it. We desire for that intimacy with Christ and we desire for that intimacy with our spouse. Are there steps that you can take today to press on towards that goal rather than the goal of self-pleasure, vulgarity, or conquest? Is God reminding you today not to stir up nor awake in love until it pleases. And for those of us that are married, is God reminding us not to settle for bad sex, but to rather work towards the goal of the kind of intimacy you would expect from a God that puts erotic love poetry in his holy book? The other thing I'd like to mention about this particular episode is that it is erotic. I think that we need to remember that this is poetry, and poetry evokes feelings through images and situations and the presence of, of some details and the suspicious lack of other details. We may not be sure that the man has actually entered the chambers, but when he says, open for me, my sister, my lover, do you think it's a coincidence that the word door isn't in that sentence? Instead of saying, hey, my hair is wet and I'm cold, please let me in. My head's covered in dew. He says, my head is covered with dew. My locks with the drops of night. We are given the image of a woman who has resisted her lover slightly and, ex and that excites her, right? Especially when he puts his hand near the latch of the door. And then suddenly her hands are dripping with myrrh. A rare and precious substance. I bring this up in this context because this sermon, in, in the context of this sermon, because this is poetry. And poetry isn't concrete. Its purpose is not to deliver well-informed narrative. The purpose of poetry is to evoke that passion through mystery. This is a little weird, right? And that's okay. With mystery comes risk, though. This dream in particular shows us a couple that have played their games a little too well. And it comes back to haunt them. She finally opens for her beloved 
But it is little, uh, it's too little, too late, and he is gone. All of a sudden, in verse 7, we get one of the weirdest sections in the entire book. Seeking and finding may be a theme to these lines, but here in verse 7, the watchmen find her. The imagery that just seconds before was intensely sexual and kind of naughty now turns suddenly violent and awkward. We don't know how severe the beatings were, but we do know that they were so aggressive that they ripped her clothes off, leaving her exposed. Her reaction in verse 8 is not to seek protection, but rather to speak to, uh, but rather to speak to her audience and charge them to tell her beloved that she is sick with love. Sexuality is a dangerous business. And when you mix it with love, it creates something that can quite suddenly have unforeseen consequences. Sex is a dangerous business. Unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, they're just the tip of the iceberg from a physical point of view. Mentally, we load up magazines with bedroom techniques and psychological explanations of why women act one way sexually and men act another emotionally we put ourselves at risk of long-term scarring and the word that should have been in every sentence that we saw read so far fear so much of this is fear so much of this business that we do with sexuality is dealing with our own fear and the god that says do not be afraid sex is scary Sex is dangerous. Sex is weird. We do it anyway. Why? Because it's worth it. The other day, I, um, <laughs> this might be funny in relation to Amy's uh, prayer, but um, I, I started teaching James about fire. And I sat him down and I tried to be very calm about it. And I said, um, I want to show you something. This is one of the most powerful things that human beings have ever stumbled upon. I didn't say that. I probably said something. He's like, ooh, thanks, Dad. It is, though. It is one of the most powerful things that human beings have ever stumbled upon. Amy said, remember, James, this is a tool, not a toy. Well, I started thinking about that. Well, I'm preaching a sermon on sex. Can I say that? Can I say that, that, that sex, like fire, is a tool, not a toy? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that sexuality is a tool that helps us understand the living God better? the God that exists in our marriage, the God that is alive and well in our marriages. You know, human beings stumbled upon fire somewhere in the course of prehistoric times. And it probably scared them to death. They may have seen it created from some sort of lightning or something else, and they realized, ooh, if we could only harness that. But this, this was in my friend Chris's pocket this morning. And I said, can I use it for a sermon illustration? For him, it's quite simple. 
But then you turn on the news, right? And you see that fires have devastated our West. And you see that we still haven't gotten a hold of it. We still have ways of keeping it contained. We still have ways of attempting to control it. And we need to be wise for that. We need to be considering the things that we can do to be safe. Maybe safe isn't the right word, but you definitely want to be cautious, right? In regards to fire and in regards to sex. Maybe water is better an image. I've read, um, we went to the beach a couple of weeks ago, and I went down to the ocean, and I just sat there in the middle of the night looking out. It's actually pretty well lit because it was Ocean City. But looking out into the ocean and just being overwhelmed by the sheer immensity of that ocean, of this sea that has so much power but is also so valuable that it's used in such a way that it has created civilizations when people have learned how to use it well. Consider what Herman Melville says in the opening chapter of Moby Dick. Go visit the prairies in June where for scores on scores of miles you can wade knee-deep among the tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? Water. There is not a drop of water there. Were Niagara but a cataract of sand, would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and its own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning. And still deeper the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image, we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. Does God have something to say to you this morning about fire, about water, about the natural state of things and the gifts that God has given us in nature? And does that speak to our sexuality? To what extent can we control it? To what extent can we regulate it? And to what extent do we just need to do business with a thing that many times is out of our control? And we just need to offer up prayers to God and say, God, this is a dangerous, weird, and unstable thing that I will not navigate well without your guiding hand. I screw this up. You can turn that stumble into a dance. Does God have something to say to you this morning about risks? About things that are weird? Let me pray. Father, my friends and I 
have come in this morning with pain, with sorrow, with brokenness, with unstable emotions. We are desperate for your love. We are desperate for your redeeming blood that we know as much as we screw up, we can look to you for a guiding hand, for love. The danger of our own religion is that it can sometimes make us believe that we can earn something that has been freely given to us. Help us know that the grace that you offer can penetrate every inch of our lives. Not just our prayer life, not just our Bible studies, but our jobs. The way we view nature, the way we view the gifts that you've given us, the way we view our families, the way we view our marriages, and the way we view our sexuality. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray today. Amen.